I'm Chan Storland, and welcome to This Week Korea, an Anything Goes panel discussion program featuring the opinions of expats and Korean nationals on some of the biggest yet often underreported stories from the last week. Brought to you by KoreaFM.net. On today's show, our first guest is a Canadian radio broadcaster and host of The Korea File, a podcast of conversations about music, history, and society from around the Korean Peninsula. New episodes are posted every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and various other Korean academic and expat community groups. And also in his spare time, he's a public school teacher on rural Jeju Island. My friend and podcasting colleague, Mr. Andre Goulet. Great to have you on the program. Good to be here, Chance. Thanks for the opportunity. Our next guest is a Korean-American from California who's been living in Seoul for the past four years and expressed an interest in English radio, something I also did in my last year of high school. So I invite her to take part in the program. Minkyo Park, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Minkyo, you know, if you keep your interest in radio, you could turn out just like me, a 29-year-old hosting an English radio program through Skype. That would be great. All right. Aim high. Thank you. And our final guest is a Korean-American who has been living in Seoul for 14 years. He is currently a Ph.D. candidate at Seoul National University studying international relations, and his interests include North Korean affairs and issues of reunification. Daniel Lee, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks for the invite. And I'm Chance Dorland, an American radio journalist and former Peace Corps volunteer living and working here in Seoul. I'm also the guy behind KoreaFM.net, an online radio station that features independent musicians and podcasters from the Korean Peninsula. And one of the new uh, original programming initiatives that we have are for programs like This Week Korea. So let's jump in. Starting in September, something is going to happen here in Korea that is going to break my heart. Perhaps you guys will not agree. I've been chastised for a few posts on Facebook about this, but let's discuss. Korean bank books will soon no longer be issued. These paper bank books that you get that allow you to print out all your transactions, all your deposits, they're going away. So if a customer opens a new account starting in September and does not ask for a bank book, they will not be issued one. And then for the next two years, banks and financial institutions will encourage customers to open accounts without the paper bank book. They'll offer such benefits like lower interest rates or perhaps lower or no commissions on financial transactions. And then according to one report, by September of 2020, they'll actually charge you as much as 18,000 won, while another report says that by that time, they just won't have them. You'll have no option and you'll have to use your ATM card or you'll have to use online banking which is actually a pretty big change because South Korea has been using these paper bank books as far back as 1897. So I'm going to open this up to some comments from you guys. (laughs) As I've mentioned, this is breaking my heart. I love bank books. I've never seen anything like this anywhere in the world that I've been to. I I believe in the United States they had something like this in the past, um, but by the time I had a bank account, this was gone. Um, Is anyone else heartbroken about this, or have you guys all embraced uh, online banking in Korea, which, truth be told, is not the easiest online banking system to use? I'm so agnostic. I like I I don't care really one way or the other. I honestly don't even think about the fact that I occasionally use my bank book. I usually use my card. And yeah, I mean, I never even really thought about how unique it is to Korea. Now that it will be gone, um, I'm afraid I won't miss it. Daniel, what do you think? Are you also on the uh, dump on chances dreams bandwagon? 
Um, unfortunately, yes, I think, because uh, I haven't used a bank book for years, pretty much. And just having a card and also the internet banking, just by those two itself, uh, pretty much negates any use usage of the card. And for exactly. me personally, I don't like to carry around a bunch of, you know, just luggage or, um, you know, extra just weight on me. So I just like to use my card or just Daniel, Daniel, did you ever like have a sentimental feeling about like taking your bank book out when you used it eight years ago? <laughs> Thank, thank, thank you, thank you for that, Andre. Well, well, Daniel, you mentioned online banking. You're, you're Korean American. Um, you have Korean language skills that I do not have. I can speak a little bit of Korean, but it's, you know, it's still very hard for me. Um, do you think that without those Korean language skills, you would be able to navigate online banking in Korea, or, or are you just like some of my other friends who don't speak any Korean and they still use online banking? I just know that personally, some banks are easier than others. Yeah, uh, that was particularly a big issue when I, you know, was first uh, learning how to use the bank here. Uh, but uh, once you get the system down, it, it is actually easier. It's just kind of a setup process that I've noticed, which was the most difficult part. But yes, you need to, you need to uh, learn some Korean in order to uh, actually have this uh, internet setup, so you can actually use the internet banking system. Um, so unfortunately, I think that's where I think a lot of foreigners will have a tough time. Um, you know, learning the system because it is very complex. And Minkyo, what's your uh, banking been like here in Korea? Have you uh, been able to use a, a bank book or as the youngest person here on the show, I'm sure you maybe have just seen one in a museum? Well, I do love bank books. I mean, I'm with you. I really do like bank books. I think the feeling that you get when you look at a bank book later, it will be like really sentimental and everything. And as a well, my Korean isn't so bad, but when I go to the bank and I try to use the, you know, the online banking system or the ATM or everything, the Korean really throws me off track. So for me, the bank books, they were really like, you know, they were really convenient. It was kind of just the fact that you have it on paper in front of you, I think, that just kind of gave me a good feeling to it. And it was really convenient for me. Uh, Minkyo, as someone who I, I hate to, <laughs> it sounds like I'm, I'm trampling your dreams, but as someone who, you know, has expressed interest in, in English radio, so, you know, I was, I was happy to have you on the show, and, and <laughs> hopefully we can remain in contact and continue to work on some English radio together. You don't make a lot of money, um, and especially here in, in <laughs> Korea, um, it, that's something that I've had to deal with. So, uh, m making the little amount of money that I have been mm -hmm. able to make, going to the bank and seeing those deposits each week on paper and being like i earned that money has kept me going exactly i'm worried what's going to happen when that bank book goes away maybe in a couple years i think i can hold on to my bank book until then um it, yeah that, that that was that was a real nice chance they're going to be extinct by 2020 but only in principle it says in the jungang daily article that they can still be issued and there will simply be like a fee of five to fifteen thousand won so, well, see, that's the thing, though. I, I, I've seen conflicting reports. My producer at the radio station I work at, the report that we did said that they were going to be gone in two years. And then this other, um, this other news article that you just quoted that I sent out before the show, they said that they're going to be available, but you'll have to pay maybe like as much as 18000 won. As mentioned just now, with my little money that I make in English radio, I'm not going to shell out $18,000, I'm sorry, $18 <laughs> basically for a bank. Yeah. So... So I'm glad Mikio has, has, has jumped on the Help Chance bandwagon. Uh, but uh, 
uh, as I mentioned before the show, I, I, I did this report and uh, I got some uh, street interviews about bank books. Let's listen now to what people had to say. We'll come back and wrap up the topic. It's not something I've put much stock into. The only time I ever really needed it was when I was applying for a job. You know, when I go to get money from the ATM, I never needed it. And I don't think it will really affect the way I live my life, nor the way I bank here in Korea. I hardly see my friends use the bank book, just internet banking and card. I think it would be totally fine for me because I don't need paper. And these days, my smartphone can gather all transactions, so I don't need the paper anymore. I think that's not a good idea because there is a lots of benefit. And also when we remove all the paper books, it also spends lots of money. One thing I do notice about the banking here, in terms of the internet banking, is that it's a lot to deal with in terms of logging in, passwords, identity uh, protection, and apparently it doesn't always work either, right? So I I think I would be for something that is more simple. I look at my U.S. bank account and, and it takes me a few seconds to log in. Here it takes me a few minutes, and that's if I already have everything set up. First time you try logging in, good luck, right? Newer generation would probably be alright with that, but older generation, like Harmony, Halabuti, they're still working. I don't know why they're still working. People are scared of that thing, but they don't have other options, so they need to use their online banking system. People must be afraid of online banking because we can see lots of news that people are hacked and they lose their money so even I'm afraid of the possibility of hacking I need to use my bank account but there is no paper bank so therefore there is no choice but use the online banking so as we just heard um, once again just really one supporter of chance so I, I had the, the female Korean that I spoke to and also uh, the female Korean on the program thank you Miko for the, for the support um, I, I think what Unfortunately, we're, we're missing here a little bit and was kind of alluded to in the clips is that we don't have any like 70 year olds on the panel today. Um, and I think that this might be a bigger deal for them. I, I have to wait in line sometimes for like five or 10 minutes because, you know, it's very stereotypical, but it's true. Like an older Korean woman will be sitting there paying her bills and she'll have her bank book and she'll update. You'll probably have multiple accounts and update all these bank books. Uh, I would say I'm very, or at least I was, I was very surprised in the amount of older Koreans who had smartphones where, you know, in the States or other countries, older people usually will have perhaps a mobile phone, but not necessarily have such a nice smartphone device as you'll see here in Korea. I think that aside from that, um, that they've been able to kind of keep up with technology in that area, this might hurt them. I'm not sure a lot of older Koreans are going to be able to use online banking. I think it's a good question how 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 uh, technological change affects elderly people in Korea because yeah I mean I don't know a lot of elderly people to see how the bank book issue would play out or other things smartphones or like online banking but at the same time I mean half of Korean elderly people live below the poverty line uh, many of those people have been abandoned by their kids right mm-hmm. so maybe the broader issue is that there's this huge segment of the elderly population who like barely have money to put in the bank, let alone worry about how to use the bank book. 
But but once again, you know, let's just say we go with that article you quoted earlier that says that they're still going to have bank books, but they're going to be like maybe five to fifteen dollars. These poor people who perhaps maybe have a bank account, they're they're going to be like me. They're not going to want to shell out fifteen bucks for a bank book. So wh- right. whether or not they have the option, it's basically going away in two years because who's going to want to pay that? Mm. So <clears throat> we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, not <laughs> the most important topic to ever. Um, face the Korean Peninsula, but I gotta tell you, I um, I am gonna miss. What is that thing? I I'm so out of uh touch now. Even as just a 29 year old, I feel like I'm 70. You like take some hard liquor and you like pour it on the ground in remembrance of your friends who are no longer there. I think I will have to do that for the bank book. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. All right. But not on my bank book because it's wet and that won't go over well. Uh, so moving on to our, our second topic, we'll have two more on the program before we call it a day. There has been a lot of attention uh, on Jeju lately, which is great because Andrew is Skyping us now from um, the number one Korean tourist destination, Jeju. And that's because the this construction of a new naval base that's been going on there for a couple years and will soon be finished. Um, so I'd like to start with Andre's thoughts on the issue, as you know, he obviously has a unique perspective. Um, but I'll throw out a few key facts and let him take it from there. There have been massive protests over the construction of this naval base, and now the South Korean Navy has been ordered to pay 23.2 million U.S. dollars in compensation to Samsung CNT, the construction company that has a lot of or rather a construction company that has a lot of a stake in this project because environmental protests have delayed the building that was originally announced back in 2007. So because these protests have delayed the construction, the government is going to pay Samsung CNT $23.2 million and basically be like, we're sorry. I, I, I know there's probably some reasoning behind this and maybe I'm being a little too critical when perhaps you know companies have deadlines they have contracts blah 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 blah. but just on face value alone that does seem a little bit ridiculous yeah so okay so they've been building it since 2007 or they the the planning started in 2007 and uh last week was actually the 3000th day of protest so it's been going on for many years uh it's definitely more like about like consistent protest than numbers although lots of people have been involved um and there's just sort of like a daily rotating crew of people who protest these are catholic nuns buddhist monks uh and sort of sort of like social justice or environmental agitators from different peace groups from the the region uh in in this part of uh, the asia pacific region and also from like north america and europe and stuff so um I want to give a little bit of historical context to why this is a big issue on Jeju, um, that a Navy base would be built. Okay, the base was going to be, is going to be huge. It'll accommodate 20 battleships and two cruisers, which is basically like, I mean, that's a really big base. Uh, and Ganjong Village is a village of maybe 2,000 people, um, right on extremely beautiful coastline, uh, not far from like a tourist area, but the village itself is is like pretty agricultural, kind of rural, and uh, building a base there is obviously going to be like hugely jarring, environmentally damaging, and okay, so Jeju is historically a place of exile in Korea. Uh, those who'd fallen out of favor in Joseon era courts in Seoul were sent to Jeju for early retirement, 
uh, they, they were exiled on the island. Consequently, Jeju is historically been perceived as a place of outsiders. There's also a different language spoken here, or at least there was in the previous generation. They speak Jejua and not uh, Korean. It's two distinct languages. And there's traditions that are unique to the island within the framework of Korean culture, like with women's roles in society and in the economy. Jeju is essentially a matriarchy and, and has been historically. So there's that. Uh, then uh, the 4-3 uprising or 4-3 massacre, uh, April 3rd, 1948, was the beginning of a year-long uh, like mass killing of Jeju people who were suspected of being communists. Um, and the Seoul government at the time, this was prior to the official division of the Koreas, uh, sent down soldiers and also like sort of right-wing thugs, like youth thugs, to terrorize the islanders. 30,000 people were killed. 30,000. So Jeju went through this incredibly traumatic experience in the mid-century. Um, so there's that uh, sort of background to why a naval base, a huge naval base, would be something that Jeju people would react to. Jeju perceives itself as a peace island, uh, or civic groups have sort of developed this kind of identity for Jeju. So, and then a final observation, Jeju is part of a sort of trio of peace islands in this region. Those islands are Okinawa, uh, in the southwesternmost island of Japan, uh, Taiwan, which is uh, across the uh, strait from China, and Jeju. These three places all kind of share certain things in common in how they have self-identified as places of peace. Okinawa, because there's 26,000 American troops there, and it's a really small island. Taiwan, because China has thousands of missiles aimed at the island, um, and so they've also perceived themselves as a place of peace. So Jeju is part of this sort of contemporary way of, of framing identity through being a place of peace. And the naval base is in stark contrast to that. So the pro a lot of the protest kind of comes from this side of, of the uh, ideological thinking about, about militarism on the island. So now let's open up the discussion, I guess, just to kind of what you just described, Andre, but then also th th something that I, I just want to discuss about, and obviously I'm no naval expert or military expert, but it just seems like looking at South Korea, obviously the big military foe, if you will, would be North Korea. And I know North Korea, they, um, I don't know they've ever like claimed responsibility, but everyone is like, yes, they did sink the Cheonan, the South Korean uh, ship back uh, a few years ago, killed lots of people. But it's not like they're always going out on the high seas and having this like we look at you and then you look at us and they face each other it seems more like it's our country versus your country and then obviously jeju is very far away from north korea so it just seems to me like the case could be made that maybe the base isn't needed at all um that's and then a good point so the the question is whether this base is necessary i mean that's one of the reasons that people have also been uh, some people have been up in arms against it so like yeah is it geared towards defending uh korea or is it supposed to serve as part of an American forward deployment strategy aimed at China and at Southeast Asia? Like, you know, it could be. The Korean uh, military says, well, yeah, this is going to be for, you know, Korean ships. But the, the operating agreement with the American military means 
those American boats could go in there. Of course they could. Why not? Um, now, if it was a forward operating deployment strategy, I mean, that's not that abnormal. Korea and South Korea and the states are tight militarily. So why wouldn't they want to have a military defense at the southernmost point of Korean territory, right? Like, it's rational. So, uh, Daniel and Mikio, what, what are your thoughts about all this? Uh, have you been hearing about people complaining about this? One thing that I, I've been able to learn so much about by, you know, uh, being a colleague of Andre's and also listening to the Korea file is, is how separate and really different Jeju is from the rest of the country, but also perhaps because of that, how little people talk about Jeju in Seoul and the rest of the peninsula other than, oh, hey, we're going to Jeju this weekend to, like, have a good time. No one really cares about Jeju. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if people perhaps not really haven't been talking about this because I have learned so much about Jeju that no one ever talks about just by listening to Andre's podcast, The Korea File. Well, I think as he previously stated, I mean, the real question is why is this actually necessary? I mean, they say it's built for military and commercial purposes, but it was first issued in 2007, and it's been about eight years since then. And um, without this naval base for, through, during these eight years, there hasn't been any serious loss or danger without it. So is this naval base imperative? I mean, the repercussions of this naval base seem to be detrimental to Jeju's outdoors, as you can see from the serious protests and riots that have been occurring from Jeju's environmentalists. Yeah. And um, because Jeju is also a less urbanized as opposed to Seoul, and people do have a certain pride on the sort of authenticity and cultural aspect of Jeju, I think that it's only natural for environmentalists to stand up and protest against it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I want to stress it really is beautiful. I've been down to where they're building the base, and uh, it's gorgeous. Like, the coastline is incredible. The way Jeju's coastline tends to be incredible. And, uh, you know, just just on the coast, looking out to sea with these beautiful rock formations, then you look to your right, and there's, like, barbed wire and a backhoe digging out uh, earth as they continue to build uh the base is really striking. Beautiful in its own way, Andre. Beautiful in yep. its own way. <laughs> very, very true, Chance. Well, thank you, Andre, first of all, for your extensive uh, history of Jeju mm. Island. It's My pleasure. quite interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm also in agreement that, um, I, I don't know, is it really necessary? Um, I mean, the southern you know, half of the peninsula in itself isn't that big. I mean, besides just the Navy itself, we also have, um, you know, ground forces along with um, a pretty good Navy, you know, if we were going to counter North Korea's um, Navy and also air power in, sense, in the sense of, you know, our, our fighter jets are much more trained and highly qualified. So having another base down there just kind of, um, yeah, just, I think it just fuels more um, just arms race, I think, between um, the countries that are here. Um, also sparking, you know, protests from the island, which also has its own autonomy, you know, which is kind of different from uh, other regions in Korea. So they're self-sufficient in some sense. They have self-autonomy. They have like a separate governing structure um, and for the government to come in and to build a huge base. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, not actually a, a necessary thing at this point. Um, they have so much more other uh, firepower that they can use to, you know, cover those areas. Um, and if it was built in 2007 and it's, you know, hasn't built and hasn't been done by now, um, then, yeah, there's also the question of, is it actually needed at this point? And it didn't I, stop I, you know, the Cheonan or it didn't stop the Yeonpyeong attacks. Those are the places, the areas, right, near the Incheon area where a lot of the naval clashes have occurred. 
Jeju is just like way down, way down there. So, um, you know, it, maybe it's um, a focal point for, uh, like you guys mentioned, the U.S. Maybe um, they want to contain China uh, or something like that. But it's kind of interesting because China, this naval force, um, didn't appear to be a big threat until recently, like until they started building those man-made islands. Um, so if maybe the U.S. Uh, was trying to counter China before any of that happened, um, along with, um, you know, there's also uh, the U.S. bases that are trying to be built in the Australia region as well. So um, if it's all a part of maybe the ROK-U.S. Uh, alliance plan, um, that could also be uh, kind of an issue that we have to look at. I think, Chance, it was interesting that the uh, Korean Commercial Arbitration Board asked the Navy to pay, and then the Navy said, yeah, no problem, and they got the government to, like, sign off on that money. But then they also said, okay, and we're going to get this money back from the protest groups. So uh, they were kind of fronting on that account, I think, because it's not possible to get $23 million from a ragtag group of like hippies and social justice advocates. Especially now, because now half of them won't be able to use online banking. Their bank books won't work. <laughs> this is all coming together. It's, it's complicated. But what I was curious about was who are the Korean Commercial Arbitration Board? Because like, for them to be able to come down and make this sort of decision seemed interesting, right? So on their website, they uh, they claim to be independent, and I'm sure they are. But then I got to thinking, like, in, this is Korea, right? So how independent are they really when Samsung C and T, which I'm sure is you know connected with the uh, uh, Samsung like megacorp, um, is is uh, lobbying them to. Uh, uh, rule in favor of getting some money back from all the money they've lost on this base building. So I, I think that's part of the story too, but like in a lot of Korean stories, we don't have an English language media which serves to investigate this kind of thing. And, you know, it kind of felt like, kind of felt like we were just being told, oh, this is interesting. The government has to pay a huge amount of money to a large corporation um, because somebody, you know, messed up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's something that, uh, as I'm sure you'll agree with, and Daniel, we actually originally met because we were applying for the same job at a Korean broadcaster that neither neither <laughs> of us got. Neither of us got. Listen, <laughs> me, kill. This is this is the future. All right, but it's good. We have good times. Every every you know, Daniel and I are friends now. You'll have lots of friends. Um, that that's one of the things. Obviously, Daniel and then Minkyo for you. Maybe this would be a little different um, with your Korean language skills. But yeah, being a journalist or working in TV or working in radio, because there are many people who work in radio and TV here in Korea who are not journalists, just like in America. But I, I'm sad to say that most of the people I meet, I would never ever refer to them as journalists here in Korea. Um, <laughs> when you do stories like this unless you have the language skills you're relying on like the korea times or the korea herald or yonhap news those are like the big three to get those stories and if they don't tell you what this is you have to ask a korean colleague and you just feel like an idiot because i kind of am an idiot like I, I work in korea in radio and i do a little bit of tv here and there like it would be really appropriate for me to have these language skills and as andre just mentioned like unless you know what the korean commercial arbitration board is you have to ask someone you have to do your homework because these newspapers and these english radio and television stations they're not going to tell you because um, that's just the climate here they they don't do in-depth reporting they don't ask questions they don't they'll say that you know this board this arbitration board ordered them to pay but they won't ask the arbitration board follow-up questions they won't ask this that and the other and i know that english news in korea is 
you know, a very small market. Obviously, Koreans, for the most part, don't speak English. And I'm happy to live here in a country that has English media when it's not their national language. And I applaud Korea for even being at that level. But Wait, no, stop. Stop. No way, dude. (laughs) No, because... We are, we're, we're, the foreign community is incredibly poorly served by the low quality of the media here and never give them an out. Never. In Taipei, they have an amazing English paper. It's of a really high quality. It's excellent. Bangkok, before they had the most recent military coup, had a completely free, uh, the nation in, in Bangkok, excellent paper, really just like high quality journalism. We lack that in Seoul. And I don't know why. I, I'm, I don't understand what it is. Is it complicity between like elites or something? But there's something very, very wrong with English language media in Korea. And it's, it's frustrating. On Jeju, we have um, a, a weekly magazine, the Jeju Weekly. And it's edited by um, a, a British guy named Darren Southcott. And he's quite brilliant. He, he takes a lot of sort of advocacy journalism to what's going on on Jeju. And he's able to sort of negotiate the different uh, responsibilities to uh, authorities or people with like financial influence while still telling the stories that need to be told on Jeju right now in a time that's like full of huge development and like rapid change. Um, outside of the Hankyore, which only publishes an English language website, there is no strong English language media. And it's really weird. I mean, it's, it's, I don't understand why it is. Daniel or, or Minkyo, do you have any thoughts on this? Obviously, you guys have spent some time in the States. Daniel, you and I have worked uh, for the Korean media. Why? I, I agree. I, maybe I'm a little bit less pessimistic than Andre, but I don't disagree with what he just said. Why, for lack of a better description, uh, does the English media kind of suck in Korea? Why is that? Yeah, well, uh, just to give my first, uh, you know, my first view here, um, I, I just think, uh, the, first of all, the level of quality of the um, the English speakers, maybe, or the, the level of journalism that we have here isn't as high. And, you know, it's either, you know, the uh, the chicken or the egg. But I think it's the, the, the I guess, the fundamental issue be, uh, for that is because, well, first of all, the government has a lot of influence over the media here in Korea, uh, whether it be uh, radio or TV in general. So the biggest outlets, um, you know, whether even if it's Korean or not, um, you know, the government has a, a large sway uh, over the media. So what's being said, uh, it can't be too offensive to some, some sensitive issues such as, you know, North Korea, obviously. We can't, like, just go out there and badmouth them. Um, so that's one thing that I've noticed. Um, so that kind of uh, discourages um, a lot of the, the freedom of speech. Um, you know, in the States, we have the First Amendment. So a lot of what we can say is uh, hindered and limited. Um, the second part is, it's just that it doesn't really pay that well, you know, to, do, to work in radio broadcasting. I mean, Chance, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't pay that well. Yeah, it, it, it does not. I, oh I, I worked for free for years in the States because that's what you do in radio. If you work in TV, a lot of the time you'll get paid. You might still work for free here and there, but... In the radio, it's just like anyone who walks in who has vocal cords could be on the radio. So, you know, they don't even have to look nice or even be presentable, which is, you know, the caveat with television. And so uh, the, the thing I always tell people is like, if you study to be a doctor and you don't have a job for a year, you're still a doctor. If you go to school for journalism and you work in radio for 10, 15 years, and then you don't work in radio for two or three years, you're really not a journalist anymore. You're not a radio broadcaster. It's, it's really based upon your employment. 
so that sucks in the States and that sucks in a lot of places. But coming here to Korea for the amount of work that I've done, I have received like su- such a low amount of compensation. I, I I'm really am surprised that I'm still here. And really, it just is a tribute to how much I love Korea and how much I love the Korean people that I've still decided to stay here because there is not a lot of money in, in the industry. Podcasting is kind of the indie rock of journalism where you got to go play for free. Yeah, but you're playing for free half the time with the big broadcasters anyway. So at least that's true. At least when you podcast, your name's on it, and it's obviously your your content. Where if you work for a big broadcaster, you know you're it's their content, and people don't realize that you're not getting paid. With podcasts, people realize that you're probably not making any money, so they appreciate all the work you're putting out. But if you're doing work for all these places and they're paying you pennies, they they don't realize. And so when you complain, they're like, "What are you complaining about? You work for this broadcaster or for that broadcaster?" And <laughs> and, ju- and just to say, I I am happy. With with my employment situation i just would would love if 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 people in general in korea because i've worked for a couple different radio stations if they just upped the amount of compensation in general i think that would be appropriate i feel you i wanted to speak to daniel's uh uh talking about sort of how maybe the issues are institutional with the uh lack of quality in the english language media and uh you know the north korea thing is a huge thing like Sure. The Korea is essentially an unfinished country uh, as long as there's this incredible division, right? Like, it's pretty insane. And as long as that happens, there's going to be, like, laws and uh, attitudes from governments or from elites that don't allow for a rational way of moving forward. And, uh, you know, I- I'm sure the media feels the effect of that. Like, there's, there's, not, there's not a ton of independent media even in Korean. Well, no, that's not true. There's lots of independent media, but it doesn't necessarily have power outside of how it influences, like, the man on the street who buys a copy of the Hankyore, right? So, yeah. yeah. Unfinished country! Unfinished <laughs> country. Mikio, what, what, have, what have your impressions been as someone who is now living here in South Korea, but obviously before that was in the States? Um, have you seen major differences with just how stories are reported here or maybe the role that media has? Um, obviously, for someone like myself or Andre, we're not paying a lot of attention to the Korean side of things. And truth be told, we should be called out for that. It'd be nice if we had better Korean language skills. Um, so feel free to talk about either the English side or the Korean side. Um, well, actually, I think that in both cases, um, mainstream media, such as like news media, is really fabricated a lot sometimes. And um, you know, in America, some of the um, news news that news that gets broadcasted is like, controlled and like fabricated by the managers. But in Korea, it's mainly controlled by the government. And um, I remember last year in the huge Seoul ferry accident, there were a lot of reports that were obviously fabricated and that were controlled by the government. So I think in that aspect, Korea is kind of lacking in media. And and as Daniel previously stated, it isn't really a great way to make the most money. Okay, so yeah, that was a nice conversation we had moving from Jeju into um, kind of the state of media and journalism here. Um, We have some time left. Let's move on to uh, our third topic for today's program. This upcoming Saturday, August 15th, marks the 70th anniversary of kind of what we were just talking about, the Korean Peninsula's liberation from Japanese colonialization, which then, of course, led to the Korean War and the current status of the two Koreas as we see it now. And because it's a Saturday, the Korean government has declared that a temporary national holiday will occur 
the Friday before, so you get a nice three-day weekend. You know, this happens in other countries. If, like, the 4th of July is a Saturday or Sunday, I, I believe in the past I remember them, you know, giving you a tip of the cap and making sure that there's a Friday or a Monday so you have a nice three-day holiday. But that's not where the fun stops with this final story that we're talking about. The 93-year-old widow of former President Kim Dae-jung has also just returned from North Korea on a rare four-day trip to try to improve inter-Korean dialogue and cooperation on the eve of this anniversary. Um, this woman, Yi Hui-ho, she had previously met with Kim Jong-un in December of 2011 while visiting North Korea to pay tribute after the death of his father, former North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, but she apparently did not get to meet North Korea's leader this time around on that four-day trip. Uh, you know, got a lot of media attention. I personally, you know, tip of the cap to her uh, as a very, very late in your life, you know, woman, 93 year old going to North Korea. That's a pretty ballsy thing to do. Congrats to her. Um, but like I said, you know, she didn't get to meet Kim Jong-un. So, um, you know, it would have been nice to, to uh, have that take place. But, you know, whatever it is, what it is. So we have this. It seems, so it seems like she is, uh, you know, as a very old woman i mean she's continuing to live out her husband's legacy uh kim dae-jung was basically a superhero of of korean history and it's incredible there's no one who matches uh what he went through in his life um and then the positive influence that he had on inter-korean relations and a lot of people disagree with the sunshine policy which was the policy of engagement during his uh tenure as president but in fact, I mean, I don't see how there's, if the alternative to the sunshine policy is like, like a freeze, like there's been for the last eight years, I mean, nobody wants to have an accidental war. So Kim Dae-jung had broad shoulders, his uh, wife, his widow going to uh, North Korea. I mean, she was going because she can and because she's old. I, I'm not sure it was really as a, a, a truly diplomatic move. Um, and in these times where the Koreas are not really talking to each other much, uh, I think it's a positive. Mm. Uh, to kind of finish up this trifecta of, of stories that come out of this 70th anniversary. So, you know, we have the holiday, as Andre just put it, um, we have this move, um, that she, maybe she just did it because she could, but even then I'm going to say, you know, congrats to you. <laughs> I haven't been to North Korea myself, even though you, know, you can pay thousands of dollars and go as a tourist. I know someone who's done it three or four times. Uh, finally, with this, something a little odd, and it's been getting a lot of play around the world because whenever North Korea does something that is typically you know, odd North Korea, it gets picked up by everybody, and it's a fun little story. North Korea will soon have its own time zone, Pyongyang Standard Time. It'll be 30 minutes behind South Korea, which is actually the time zone all Koreans used before Japanese colonialization, which, if you're curious, is GMT plus eight and a half hours. So right now... South Korea, North Korea are on GMT plus nine hours, which is the same time zone as Japan. So they're going to move a half an hour back, create their own time zone. And the interesting thing is that actually between 1954 and 1961, South Korea was on this Pyongyang standard time zone. And then in 1961, they switched back to the same time zone that Japan is using, GMT plus nine hours. So... What does everyone think about this the 70th anniversary coming up? Obviously, this isn't shocking. You know, this has been going on for 69 years, but especially with kind of the degrading relations between Japan and South Korea over issues like Dokdo, 
which just every year doesn't seem to get any progress. Um, Comfort Women, which specifically in like the last year has really been um, coming more into conversation here in Korea. I hear people talking about Comfort Women. It gets reported at the radio station I work for, and it's getting picked up by, you know, media entities in other countries internationally. So, uh, Andre, my question to you, you live in the place that people go to for vacation in Korea. So is this just going to be a three-day weekend where your life is going to be kind of a living hell because everyone's going to come to your town? No, luckily on Jeju, uh, if you avoid like the regions where group tours go or where lots of people like know to go, um, then you can avoid all the brouhaha. There's basically like three kinds of tourists, um, Chinese group tours, uh, Korean domestic visitors, and they all kind of like to go to like the same places. And then the people who are also Korean domestic visitors who want to go hiking and who want to go explore and are more like travelers than tourists. So if you know where to go, you'd only see the latter kind, and those are the best kind. So, nope, ain't worried. I get you my two cents of all that's going on. Uh, first of all, yeah, having a day off, another day off, is uh, great. You know, not just for us, but for the Korean people in general. And I think um, they should always have like a day off each week. And they should call it, you know what, you know what they should call it? They should just call it Saturday. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, Second Saturday. <laughs> second Saturday or something, because like, they always be working, you know, uh, even on Saturdays. So, uh, yeah, I'm all for um, having uh, a day off um, and in commemoration of such a, an important day. Uh, they should have more of those, I think, in fact. Also, moving on to the um, other issue of sending in an elderly lady to North Korea. Um, I don't know, I think just a, it was just a timing issue because... You know, we don't know when she's going to pass away. You know, she's very, very old. Um, she has, like you said, Kim Dae-jung's, uh, a former president Kim Dae-jung's uh, legacy. And I was actually quite surprised that she went because right now we have more of a right-wing uh, government, you know, under President Park Geun-hye. And um, during Kim Dae-jung, since it was more engagement, um, more engagement policy, um, we didn't see Im Young-bak doing that, you know, the former president before Park Geun-hye. Uh, so for her to send, yeah, uh, uh, Kim Dae-jung's uh, wife uh, I mean, over she, there. Daniel, I don't think she was sent, though. I think it was sort of oh. an independent trip. Okay, yeah, and but even still, she has to, you know, receive to allow, yeah. from the Yeah, they have to allow her to, to go in there. So they could have, you know, just blocked it off and said, no, you know, relations aren't good or whatever. But uh, maybe, yeah, now the timing is has come for relations to maybe sort of, you know, cool down because we, we did have those major incidents, the naval clashes, uh, Yongkyong Island bombings and shellings uh so you know i think it was um a smart move uh you know for her to go and try to some ease some tensions and also because uh kim jong-un right now is a very very young just leader and you know he can be very erratic and we don't know what he's going to do so to find some sort of he was supposed to go to russia and then they like canceled yeah. it like i was really looking forward to him going to so, russia yeah, exactly. for the big celebration to commemorate the end of world mm-hmm. war ii you know and like russia helped you know put it all you know it's all thanks to russia and there are all these world leaders yeah. gonna go and no matter what you think about the event i was like man i want to see kim jong-un like in Russia, standing next to some world <laughs> leaders, this would be great. And then they just, they just like kind of canceled it after everybody was so like up, up in arms that it was going to happen. So yeah, really erratic. Say what you will about him. You know, he's crazy, he's evil, but you can be crazy and evil and still like have a schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they, and eventually they didn't even meet up, right? So Kim Jong-un and uh, Kim Dae-jung's uh, wife, they didn't meet up. So kind of like, it was like, is this really necessary at this point? You know, 
So that that was kind of the issue. And uh, I, I, I'd like to point out too. I'd like to point out too that you know, for Ihi Ho, she's of the generation who grew up before the artificial division, right? Sure, so sure. for her, you know, like she's she's she knows she's coming to the end of her life, and being there, you know, being physically there in the geography and just seeing the people, and you know, I, I find it kind of a beautiful thing. I don't think it was like a, a government-driven initiative. I'm pretty sure it was driven by the Kim Dae-jung Peace Institute in uh, Gwangju, and they probably organized everything. So for her, it was probably just her last chance to go do that and a way of carrying on her husband's legacy, even if just a little bit, you know? Yeah. Her, her, her husband's legacy is that they looked at the North like the estranged cousin and not like the enemy. Mm -hmm. So for her going there, it was, you know, it wasn't like... I don't think she thought she was taking a risk, I, I'm sure. It's an hour away by plane, like, um, to, to Pyongyang. Yeah, I really do think that she shouldn't be judged by the fact that she didn't get to meet um, the president of North Korea. I think, yeah, she is getting up there in years. So just the fact that she went, I mean, to continue on her husband's legacy and to just go there, as you said, um, just to be in that region in itself is actually kind of really beautiful. Yeah. I want to point out, Chance, something about the uh, uh, time change for North Korea as well. Uh, it's it's kind of just like another nonsense move, right? Because they are completely isolated from having to be responsible to any other international norm, right? Like, in, in a lot of ways. So, uh, you know, the, the New York Times article kind of mocked it and stuff. But I think it just speaks to uh, how there is a constant... Uh, static to to the relationship between the Koreas and how the North needs to be engaged until it can be like molded, you know. Something that I read more and more because I it kind of really interests me is that there have been calls to to do the same thing in South Korea. Like this has come up time and time again to switch the time zone in South Korea. And apparently, I, I believe, I, I, I don't remember the exact person, but I believe it was, it was a lawmaker in like the National Assembly. He said that now that North Korea has made, you know, this promise to switch to the Pyongyang Standard Time Zone, he's going to push again for South Korea to do the same thing. But it would never happen, would it, because of the economic ties between Korea and the rest of the world or the military ties between, uh, you know, the states uh, on the Korean Peninsula and the Korean military, like, there's a lot of reasons it would never happen. And the reason the North could do it is because they're not really responsible to anybody except themselves. And that's Juche. <laughs> and that's Juche. <laughs> Juche, by the way, is Kim Il-sung's uh, 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 policy of, of independence and, like, Korea-first development. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Is that accurate? I think <coughs> so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Self-sufficiency. Yeah, self-sufficiency. So that brings us uh, to the end of the show. I'd like to give everybody a chance to kind of uh, make your final comments. And also, let's uh, let's talk about all the projects you guys are involved with. So, Andre, let's start with you. Uh, you're based in Jeju. You're going to be uh, heading back uh, to the States. Your wife is uh, American. And uh, you're going to be heading back to the States for, for a while. Um, why don't you talk about your podcast and talk about your experiences you've had on Jeju. I, I'm very jealous of uh, the kind of like man on the island situation you've been able to have. Perhaps the reality of that has not been as glamorous as I'm imagining it in my mind. But I, I'm very jealous of the, the situation you've been able to have for the last year. Oh, thanks for the jealousy, Chance. Um, yeah, my partner, she is a linguist who studies uh, Jejua, the, the 
the language spoken here on the island. And so she's into language preservationism. So that's what brought us to Korea this time. We had lived here for five years previously as well, just teaching. And uh, the podcast is a weekly podcast that is put out every Wednesday. Um, last week's episode was an interview with Darren Southcott, the editor-in-chief of the Jeju Weekly, critiquing the Jeju Forum for Peace and Prosperity, uh, which is a annual um, sort of networking forum for, for diplomats and business people and stuff like that. Uh, next week's episode is a live performance and interview with Seoul lo-fi bedroom pop avant-garde indie rockers Nice Legs. Uh, they played in Jeju City a month ago, and I interviewed them and recorded uh, their show. So it's a yeah, it's a podcast that is kind of about indie music and kind of about academic or or historical things. And it was really fun. Uh, I put out a weekly episode for about thirty eight weeks, and uh, I'm happy with that. When I go back to the states, I'll be continuing to do research but through the NAM Center for Korean Studies at the University of Michigan. They have monthly talks from uh, academics and, and people of note, as well as a couple of film festivals. So I'm going to continue to do Korea content from Michigan. Go figure. If you want to hear the podcast, subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook. It's The Korea File. And then obviously, as you mentioned, you, you've lived in Korea for four or five years, and then you came back with your wife uh, to teach, and then she, she's studying uh, the Jeju language. What, what has been your kind of, if you will, up to this point, your final viewpoint, your final stance on South Korea? You've obviously seen a side of South Korea that most people either won't get a chance to see or might just see it on a nice holiday weekend while you've lived there in those kind of less traveled areas that you were mentioning when you described the different type of tourists that come to Jeju. What's your kind of um, final blanket statement that you would give about South Korea to someone who's never been to the country and was interested or thinking about traveling here for vacation or, or deciding to live here? How does, how does South Korea stack up uh, compared to all the experiences that you've had? I I'm guessing still positive, right? Oh, of course. I love Korea. I mean, Korea is now part of my family, right? Like, it's something that my partner and I are always going to have in our back pocket, uh, and we'll, we'll live here again in the future, I know. And I don't know. I think Korea is really hard to love. Uh, it takes a lot of hard work, and maybe there's more grudging respect a lot of the time because the culture is complicated or the society is complicated or whatever, but the people are incredible. I mean, I love Korean people so much and, you know, I don't find Korea exotic compared to, uh, Southeast Asia or compared to China or compared to Japan or Taiwan, but it's the people and it's the history and it's the culture that just keeps me fascinated. Right. It's like an, it's like an onion. You're always peeling back another layer to find something else. And, of course, you're going to cry a little as you uh, discover things. <laughs> and, and like I say, it's an unfinished country, right? The most interesting, or I hope not, the most tragic, is yet to come for Korea. Uh, we're not done yet. Uh, we're, you know, <laughs> we're on our way towards, towards something else. So Korea is never going to stop fascinating me. Yeah. I think that's a great way to kind of describe Korea in any ways either an unfinished country or a country that is not formed yet. It's, it's, like, it's a lava lamp. Korea is a lava lamp, yeah. Uh, Daniel, uh, so why don't you talk about the, some of the some media work that you've done here. Um, you're finishing up your, your thesis from Seoul National University, but you're also a professor now. 
Yeah, well, not exactly professor, just uh, we, we call it a lecturer here. So just moving along, I guess, uh, with, the, with the whole PhD thing. I mean, uh, having been in education here uh, for so long, you know, and especially at the most like conservative, you know, school, uh, supposedly the top school, right, SNU, Seoul National University, uh, I have been through, you know, a lot. I've seen a lot. And um, uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, I have more of a Westerner's point of view, but I can also see things um, subjectively, you know, in the perspective of how Koreans would see them. Um, and so that sort of combination is always kind of been interesting. Uh, so as for my PhD thesis right now, I'm actually, um, because, you know, you have to have a lot of material uh, to write a, a, a PhD size uh, thesis in Korea. Um, I'm, I'm maybe looking more back towards uh, the the origins of um, how the Korean Peninsula was split, and so going as far back as Roosevelt or you know Harry S. Truman, and um, just seeing uh, some of the uh, the kinds of changes in terms of foreign policy for the Korean Peninsula uh, that that you know that America had to go through, um, you know, in spite of all the World War II ending uh, in spite of the atomic bomb being made in spite of a new threat in the form of the soviet union uh, in europe and also in asia and how that dynamic sort of changed uh, or rapidly changed america's foreign policy uh, and involvement in, in this region um so it's quite exciting um i've kind of zeroed in on this uh, concept called the trusteeship uh, which I, I don't know these days we don't really use the word trusteeship um, we use things like state building or we use uh, words like uh, giving uh, a country self-determination uh, or, you know, something like that. But uh, back then they had this concept of trusteeship, which is no longer uh, kind of in use uh, these days. And kind of seeing how that maybe concept evolved and seeing how, you know, Korea ended up you know, in, in this in this way. And if, if it could have been avoided or not. Like uh, Andre said, unfinished, an unfinished country. I, I've never actually... Um, uh, you know, summarize Korea in like any one word, but that kind of kind of hit me today. You know, it was like, wow, unfinished country. That's actually, you know, that, that's actually has a lot of truth to it. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, Korea just, um, it's also funny just seeing all, just the grievances that people have here, you know, both Koreans and foreigners. You know, Koreans have their own set of domestic grievances here, and then uh, foreigners have their own set of grievances as foreigners. And, you know, I'm always on Facebook and looking at these sites. But when I'm looking at these complaints and looking at uh, just the differences that people have, it all stems from, you know, Korea's unique history, which is uh, quite interesting. And um, you always have to take that into context, I think, when you're looking at a country like Korea. You can't just look at everything at face value and just judge it according to my Western norms. Or for me, it's from the U.S., especially California, where it's very, very chill and very, very relaxed. You, know, you come to a bustling city like Seoul, you can't just like judge everything based on your own experience. So uh, really just going through the history, going through what these people had to go through. The, you know, they had three major wars in one century alone. <laughs> you know, that in itself shows how much trauma you know, had, had to go through this country before you know, it reached what it is today. So uh, yeah, just keeping all those things in perspective, having a more objective view uh, of the country is what makes it for me uh, a lot more interesting. And one of the motives for me just staying here. 
Well, Dan, I will have to read your thesis. It will be a good read. I will get some coffee and some glasses. Oh, yeah. Sit in Starbucks like I do every day. I got to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of Starbucks. I hate the giant (laughs) company. But, uh, boy, is it comfortable sitting at a Starbucks in Korea. No one yells at you. No one tells you to leave. I buy, like, a $2 bagel, and I stay for seven hours. Uh, Minkyo, thank you uh, for joining us. Why don't you talk about... Um, why you wanted to, to, to do some English radio. When I wanted to get involved with radio about 10, 11 years ago, it was just because, obviously, as you might be able to tell, I like talking. But um, what are your motivations for trying to get involved with, uh, with media? Uh, well, actually, it's kind of the same as you. I really like talking <laughs> and, um, you know, preparing for college and everything. And um, it's gotten me thinking a lot about what I want to do in the future and definitely keeping my options open. And journalism is, of course, one of those options. So, you know, just going out there, exploring some, you know, options out there that are out there for me. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'm happy to have you on the program. And, and Thank you for having me. One of the things you'll realize, it's, a, it's somewhat unfortunate, but it's also a positive because it, it rewards the go-getters. Half of the battle, or maybe even more than half, is just showing up. There, <laughs> there, there's some great quote from like Michael Jordan or perhaps like Shaquille O'Neal or somebody just like, you know, showing up. It's like 90% of you know, whatever it is. But it's, it's literally, my, I got my start when I was 17 or 18. There was a radio station next to my 1,000-person town. It served the 10,000-person town that was about 10 miles away. And I drove by one day, knocked on the door because it was like an old house that was a radio station. And I was like, can I work here? And just like I've mentioned earlier, they were like, yeah, you can work here for free. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I started working there, and then they started paying me minimum wage, which 10 years ago was like 515, which is now, I think, 725 or something in Iowa. So I was making no money. And I had a normal job, so I was losing money by working there. But, uh, yeah, I got my start, and uh, it was great. And I was like a weird high schooler who worked at a radio station. Um, and then later that year, I started working at the television station um, for NBC oh. in Des Moines as well. So it just kind of jump-started all this stuff, you know. And then I went to school outside of my state, and I was able to have all these great opportunities and eventually land here in Korea. So touche to you, Minkyo. Stick with thank it. Thank you. And hopefully we'll have you on the show in the future. We'll see you soon. Yeah, so thank you to Minkyo. Thank you to Daniel. Thank you to Andre. I'm Chance Storland for This Week Korea. You can hear this and other great programs on koreafm.net. Sometimes you wanna 